Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Paul M. Titchenall. He's an assistant professor of physiology at University of Pennsylvania, and he's working on insulin action and metabolic disease. So uh, he'll tell us about that. Paul, thanks for coming. Great. Thanks so much for the invitation. Uh, really looking forward to talking with you today. Yeah, tell me about your research. What is uh, what does it involve in your own words? Sure. So, uh, as you introduced, uh, you know, my lab has been focused on on trying to understand the basic mechanisms of of insulin action, and we take a really uh, diverse approach where we, you know, from studying cells and culture through studying the the act the the mechanism of, of insulin action in vivo and animal models, and our ultimate goal is to um, really understand the pathogenesis of metabolic diseases that are associated with aberrant insulin action, such as insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. So our approach is really to understand what goes wrong in disease, we need to understand what goes right in, in normal physiology. And so what we really try to do is to understand and map the signal transduction pathways that insulin uses to coordinate metabolism. And we're particularly focused in really two areas, one being the liver, and the liver does um, a lot of really important things for homeostatic regulation in the body, and that is to make sugar or to undergo it through a process called hepatic glucose production, and also to make and store lipids. And under normal physiologic conditions, insulin very quickly um, and potently inhibits glucose production from the liver. And, and that makes sense if you think about when insulin is released, you just had a meal, you have plenty of sugar in your bloodstream and insulin, your, your beta cells, your pancreas respond to make insulin. And that quickly shuts off the liver's glucose production mechanism and, and, and really goes to a glucose storage mechanism. Um, that process goes awry in type two diabetes, which we could talk about. Um, so we try to understand really from uh, normal physiologic context, how does insulin exactly do that? What are the key signaling mediators of that? And also how other organs communicate to the liver to, to regulate those processes. And then we also focus on lipid. Yeah, sure. Oh, well, just, just there. Um, you know, when it comes to insulin, I would think most people are just focused on the pancreas. So first yeah. of all, like what's the, what's the dynamic of the pancreas and other organs? You know, you, I eat something. Um, yeah, what, yeah, sure. Who, act, yeah, who sure. wakes up first? And what's that? Yeah, what's the crosstalk look like? Right. So, as many of you probably know and think about mostly, when we have a meal, or especially a, a carbohydrate rich meal, blood glucose concentrations rise as we digest those carbohydrates. The beta cells of the pancreas recognize that increase and very quickly and potently secrete insulin. And, and the primary role of, of the beta cells to do that is to then stimulate the disappearance of glucose from the bloodstream, primarily into the skeletal muscle. So it stimulates glucose uptake in the muscle and in, to some extent, also in the fat cells. And so 
that's what you think of when you typically think you have a meal, insulin's come out, and that fuel now is, gets put into those metabolic tissues. What some people really don't think about as much, but it's a key biological mechanism for how, for how insulin works, is that it also, in addition to stimulating glucose uptake in, the, in those peripheral tissues, such as the muscle and fat, as I just mentioned, it also tells the liver to stop making glucose. And the liver makes a lot of glucose during fasting conditions. And for instance, when you're sleeping, your body needs a constant supply of glucose, in particular brain, to function. And your, li your liver does the heavy lifting there. So when you're fasting or in between meals, your liver produces glucose to fuel the metabolic demands of the body. And when you eat, now that you have abundant nutrient available, glucose available, insulin has to suppress the liver's ability to make glucose because you don't want overproduction. And then it also stimulates, as I just mentioned, glucose disposal by the skeletal muscle and the fat cells. All right. Um, so let's, let's take this apart a little bit. So sure. Um, the higher background insulin I have, the harder it is for the liver to what, convert glycogen into glucose. Yeah, yeah. As long as I mean, so the higher insulin you have, it does a couple of things. So if you have high insulin, but your glucose levels are maintained, your your can be considered with, with this condition called insulin resistant, meaning you need more insulin, and your beta cells need to produce more insulin to maintain the same amount of glucose or glycemia as you typically would have on their homeostatic relate uh, homeostatic conditions, and your beta cells are doing that because they're responding to that insulin resistance and they're producing more of the hormone to maintain you know, normal blood glucose levels. When that mechanism fails and your beta cells become exhausted and, and you have insulin resistance for quite a long time, you have frank diabetes. Now you have sort of high blood sugar. Those early stages, that insulin resistance stage, you know, also associated with sort of pre-diabetes is these conditions where your blood sugar is actually maintained, but you have much more insulin than you typically should because you're trying to control those blood, that blood glucose level to maintain euglycemia. And the beta cells work extra hard to do that. And these other tissues are becoming resistant to that insulin. And that's what we, and in my lab, we try to understand is why does the liver, why does the muscle, why does the fat cell become resistant to insulin under those conditions? Why does your beta cell need to work harder? And so we really try to map those pathways to illuminate new biology for us to maybe think about a plan uh, or a way forward to, to enhance insulin sensitivity in, in sort of diabetic-like conditions. Do you think that there actually is insulin resistance or what if there's, what if there's just so much, you know, in the blood that uh, there's only uh, so many gateways into cells and therefore there's a, like a cue, you know, it's not, they're just not getting in because there's just too much there and there's no driving force for it to enter the cell. There's just too much around. Too much glucose, you mean, around? Yeah, too much glucose, yes, yes. I mean, I guess that's possible, but I mean, I guess the gold standard way to see if they're resistant to the hormone is if you just give insulin resistant or what to say, pre-diabetic people the ligand, if there was ligand being insulin in this case, you would expect a robust drop in their blood sugar levels if they were able to adequately respond to that insulin. And that is not what happens, right? So if you take a pre-diabetic individual who has the same amount of blood sugar, on their, say, five-hour fasting conditions as a healthy individual, and you give one insulin, you would notice a robust response, a hypoglycemic response, their blood sugar would plummet. And somebody who is, quote-unquote, resistant to that insulin would fail to respond. And, and that, by definition, definition is what insulin resistance is. And so that's how it's really clinically defined. So I think there's fair bit of evidence, even at euglycemic conditions, 
that there is insulin resistance. Mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, I just wonder if there's some other, uh, there's some other mechanism to it, but I mean the insulin, when you, so when you have insulin secreted by the beta cells, it has to enter into the proper cells that are, uh, that have what glucose around them or glucose in them? Like how does insulin, how is it determined to enter into any particular cell? So glucose enters in the cell. Insulin does not enter in cells. So insulin will bind to what is called the insulin receptor. And that is a receptor tyrosine kinase that sticks on the outside of a cell to, to then bind to the insulin peptide and then transmit some signal, some signaling cascade to, to, to stimulate its response. Glucose is a little bit different. The skeletal muscle and the adipocyte express a particular transporter of glucose called glucose transporter 4, which is a unique transporter in that under resting conditions or non-insulin conditions is sequestered inside a cell. And then upon insulin activation on that cell through that receptor, as I just mentioned, there's this translocation of that transporter from the cytoplasm to the plasma membrane to facilitate glucose uptake into a cell. Um, and so that mechanism I just described is known to be abnormal or defective in, in muscle and fat from type two diabetics. So they have a, this translocation defect in the glucose transporter because you know they have to some degree of resistance to insulin. The, the liver is a little bit unique. The liver does not express GLUT4. It expresses a different flavor of glucose transporter that is constitutively at the plasma membrane. And so the amount of glucose that comes in is really not dependent on insulin per se. Insulin suppresses glucose production and stimulates glycogen production, as you mentioned, through different mechanisms that we can talk about. But there's sort of these two different ways that glucose is regulated, one through this translocation mechanism, and then the other through, in the liver, uh, through the suppression of glucose production and, and the stimulation of glycogen synthesis or, or you know, storage of glucose. Well, when insulin binds to a given cell, how does that change how that cell is processing the glucose? Does it gate the entry of glucose into the cell and slow it? Does it just upregulate well, it the metabolism it, that's of glucose right. inside of it? Uh, well, in the skeletal muscle and the fat cell, what it does, its primary job is to, to stimulate the translocation of that glucose transporter four. So it dramatically increases glucose uptake, and then subsequent, the metabolism of that glucose is increased. So you have increased glycogen synthesis in the muscle, you would have increased glycolysis, and that is secondary to increases in the transporter in the, of the skeletal muscle, in skeletal muscle in the fat cell. The liver, it's different because there is no GLUT4 translocation mechanism. What insulin does to that glucose is to divert it into glycogen. So the, the liver is putting glucose to be stored into these you know, large glycogen molecules for subsequent preparedness when you're fasting again. When you're fasting, you want glycogen readily available so that you can break it down and provide the precursors to glucose for gluconeogenesis to fuel, like I mentioned before, the brain and other tissues that are sort of obligate glucose consumers. What about um, if somebody consumes fructose or you know, any of the other sugars, not just glucose? What what happens during this uh, digestive response? Right. So fructose is kind of interesting. And, and so the thing we haven't talked about at all is that, so in addition to insulin stimulating glucose metabolism in the way I described, meaning the muscle and the fat cell stimulating uptake in the liver suppressing output, it also is a potent regulator of lipid homeostasis. So in the liver in particular, insulin tells the liver cell to, to make lipids, make fat. And for whatever reason, 
in insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes, that process is maintained, yet its ability to suppress glucose production is lost. So you have this really pathological complication where that the where part of the effects of insulin are maintained, but part are, are sort of abnormal. And it's this vicious cycle when you're making more lipids and you're, yet you're stimulating more glucose production in the face of high insulin. And that's a huge problem because that can lead to obviously obesity and a and disorder that we're interested in called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that is closely associated with insulin resistance. So I tell you that because of fructose metabolism. A lot of people are now thinking about fructose metabolism is, is, a, is a potent activator of lipid synthesis in liver. And when you have plenty of fructose around drinking, you know, high sucrose beverages like sodas and, and you know, sucrose rich foods, that fructose then can stimulate the process of lipid synthesis much more potently than glucose per se. And that's obviously a problem if it's in excess because you can develop these abnormalities of fatty liver disease. Fructose specifically is not um, really a direct precursor to, um, to lipids. We could talk about that, but it's, it's metabolized in a way that it activates the, the program to make lipids in the liver um, during sort of feeding conditions. Well, what in your body processes sugars other than glucose? I mean, processes sugars. I mean, so you, um, like the like the typical person, you know, in, in the U.S., their diet right now. I would think that they're getting plenty of glucose, but they're probably getting tons of fructose. You know, yeah, high fructose corn syrup for, for sure. Yeah, so what, sure. what you know, metabolically, how does that break down, and what uh, enzymes and stuff handle fructose metabolism, and does that compete with? glucose metabolism like how does that all interact right right so so certain cells um have yeah so it so it eventually feeds into the glycolysis pathway and if we could do this way i could draw the diagrams we could show but you know fructose is phosphorylated by cells by fructokinases and that then stimulates the the incorporation of fructose sugars into upstream pathways like glycolysis so similar to glucose it's just through a different sort of parallel pathway through hexokinases that phosphorylate, you know, glucose types of sugars, they all feed into glycolysis. And you're right, if you have overproduction or, or overconsumption of either sugar, they're both going to overwhelm sort of these glycolytic pathways and eventually have to be stored in places that they shouldn't be. And, and for instance, fructose is being stored in these excess, you know, being put into fat and other things where if it's in excess, it becomes a problem, right? Especially when you talk about High fructose corn syrup and there's and 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 just the our excess sucrose consumption as a as the U.S. compared to the last fifty years in, in terms of the availability of food and, and frankly how much we consume of it. Over, so, over so it all goes into like the the glycolysis hopper. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. There's multiple points sort of into the pathway, right? We think about glycolysis is the one pathway. We think about glucose commonly. Um, as sort of just a simplistic sort of textbook. And that goes you know, through this pathway with a bunch of intermediates, which you know, for this session is not entirely relevant, but then eventually gets to precursors of, of the TCA or citric acid cycle. And that's the cycle that, that are, it generates the reducing equivalents and the protons that are nece necessary for electron transport chain and thus generating ATP. But so similar to fructose, fructose feeds into sort of that glycolysis pathway at, at a point that's a little bit distal to where glucose does it, but still feeds into that, that pathway. And um, when it's unrestrained and when you have a lot of it, 
it obviously the carbons need to go somewhere and 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 the body thinks about ways to put it into places where initially it's safe but if through overconsumption it becomes sort of pathological so um if i stick my finger or if i use a cgm what am i measuring just glucose or am i uh do i get a sense of the other sugars that are in there or the other precursors no, most of the CGMs, I, I can't speak to exactly how the, the, the CGMs are, are used, but, I, you know, for the standard sort of blood glucose test strips, that's based off of a, of a standard sort of hexokinase reaction. So you're measuring glucose there. You're, you're measuring. Yes, yeah, uh, so I, would, I would think glu- that a much better monitor would measure, you know, all the oses when it leaves fructose, if it's a major component of what a lot of people are eating. Or do, is there any relevance you think in measuring the other sugars that are uh, you know in the bloodstream? I, I mean, I think there is to a certain extent, but I, I think what you care about mostly from the type two diabetic standpoint is sort of is is glucose per se, right? Because that's what the liver is producing, and that's primarily what the fuels are being used by skeletal muscle and other things. I mean, we do consume some fructose. A lot of it is actually sucrose, if you think about it, right? Most of the diets have are sucrose-rich. That's sort of table sugar. It's a disaccharide, right, of glucose or fructose. So, I mean, you can measure, you can certainly measure fructose. A lot of it's going to be actually not measurable because the gut, if you take it under normal condition, normal concentrations, most of it gets metabolized by your gut. And it's only if you drink, you know, I, I don't know exactly how much it is, but at a certain threshold where you actually spill over from the gut and into the liver, or into the liver sees it. So, there's not much of it that gets then past the liver, right? The liver is going to do a heck of a job clearing all that fructose as you go through first pass metabolism. Right. But if you looked at fructose and maybe sucrose, you might get an idea of not just someone's glucose condition, but again, the condition of their liver. If like you said the liver is a huge you know, yeah, that's point right. where everything that's right. gets processed, it's, it would be right. very so, important to analyze it. You know? Yeah. I think, and I think a lot of people, especially from this, this fatty liver disease perspective, People are looking at metabolites of fructose, I think is kind of what you're getting at. And, and, and you're measuring those in the serum to say, okay, how much fructose metabolism are they doing? You know, where is it being metabolized to? Is it in excess? And is it is it like is it promoting lipids, lipid synthesis, which is obviously a bad, you know, a complication of sort of, of the type two diabetes syndrome. So what's happening in insulin resistance then? I guess could you say like, you know, most of the binding sites are taken up already? Because that's the, <laughs> right. I mean, that's the, now it just floats that, along in the syrup. That's the billion dollar question, right? I mean, people have been working on it for quite a long time. Um, frankly, we, we, we don't have the answer. There's a, there's several hypotheses. One hypothesis is the one you just mentioned, such that, that there is sort of not enough binding sites on at the level of the plasma membrane. There's, there's either reduced numbers of the receptor or that the receptor that's there is defective and it cannot bind as much as insulin. Others have argued it's downstream of that, meaning that it's some part of the insulin signal transduction pathway that is defective. And one really popular hypothesis that associates obesity with type 2 diabetes, because there's this high, obvious correlation, and we can get into the argument, is it the chicken or the egg? But for the simplicity of, of, of this, there's this high correlation of, of obesity with type 2 diabetes. And there's been really popular hypotheses put forward by many people including Jerry, Jerry Schulman, that excess lipid metabolism leads to sort of toxic intermediates and that blocks insulin signaling transduction. And so if you have a bunch of fat building up in cells, that prevents you know appropriate signaling of that insulin to regulate glucose. Um, but frankly, we, we don't know. <laughs> and those are two sort of hypotheses. It's been in a 
really difficult question for a really long time and obviously has really important clinical uh, relevance. And that's obviously what our lab is quite interested in understanding. Have people looked at uh, various target cells to see the, the density? You know, I, I would think you could calculate looking at the membrane, the density of insulin receptors. Sure, sure. Right. So there's, of course, so there's, this has been, you know, 30 years ago, this has been people doing. So clearly there's some examples uh, in humans with, with obesity and type 2 diabetes that there's less receptors. If you measure radioactive binding of insulin to the plasma membrane, that's clearly decreased. But the question in, the question goes, is it correlation or, or is it is it causal, right? So really saying that's the mechanism is quite difficult experimentally to prove, right? A lot of things can correlate, but proving that per se is the mechanism has been quite difficult. You can see the same but things you, with instrument. In you can see, I mean, you can see like the average cell, like certain cell types have, I don't know, uh, you know, a thousand insulin receptors per cell. And then maybe you're able to make a calculation like we, we you would achieve saturation of the insulin receptors at this serum level of insulin. So therefore, you could say, well, at this level, uh, it's going to be saturation of it. So the, the insulin and has no place to go. It's complicated because the insulin receptor signaling mechanism has a lot of uh, spare capacity. So there's the argument that uh, I'm going to say just 50% of the insulin receptors are required for maximal activity. So proving the spare capacity mechanism is quite difficult. So it's not as simple as that sort of, you know, straightforward mechanism if you invoke that there's spare capacity, which has been invoked for insulin signaling to get into the weeds a little bit. So it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And and frankly, so so I think the short answer is there's there's evidence for that. The part that doesn't make sense to me is why I think insulin resistance is much more complicated, because if you think about other parts of how insulin works, like I just mentioned, is to make fat. If you have reduced insulin action, how are you still making fat? So it can't simply be a defect in sort of insulin signaling transduction to get you to fat. It has to be more complicated than that, right? If you make truly reduced insulin action, but genetically, for instance, make animal models, those mice are lipidotrophic, right? That's clearly not what happens in obesity. So it can't simply be a proximal defect in insulin action because you're only recapitulating the glucose part, but the lipid part you're completely losing. So it's really more, I think there's much more interplay there that we're trying to understand. Well, before we get into that, are there conditions that upregulate or downregulate the number of uh, insulin receptors or capacity on cells? Like, are there cancer models where the cancer has like significantly upregulated the amount of insulin receptors on a cell cell membrane? Uh, that's a good question. It may do it for the IGF receptor, which is a which is a close family member. It's a growth factor. Not, I can't speak to insulin receptor. Certainly, it's true for glucose transporters. Right. There's obviously cancers that are associated with increased glucose transporter translocation and, and activity. I don't know of any data that directly have said that there's more insulin receptors. You know, for instance, fasting and feeding, if you just physiologically, you can manipulate the amount of, of receptor there. Or like I, as we already mentioned, insulin resistant models, like uh, animal models that are severely obese and insulin resi- resistant because they lack leptin signaling, for instance, can have differential amount of the receptor at the membrane. And is it because you're trying to to get back your sensitive uh, phenotype? You know, classic receptor signaling would say if you have plenty of the ligand around, you eventually desensitize the receptor by downregulating the amount of receptor at the plasma membrane. You have plenty of signal. Let's cut off the signal. Let's de- downregulate the receptor. And those type of mechanisms are in play. And I think in some of those contexts I just mentioned, the question is, is do they underlie some of the aspects of insulin resistance? I don't think we know. I think that's the short answer. Yeah, and I don't know if this is the case, but I, I heard that insulin is a, essentially a protein 
that undergoes folding in order to be functional. So perhaps in an environment where you know the beta cells have to crank out lots of insulin, that process gets messed up because there's a lot of misfolded insulin. I don't know, just making this up. And maybe yeah, no, I, I think that and, I think there's some argument for let's maybe that contributes to beta cell failure, right? Because you have these beta cells that are working really hard. They're making a bunch of in- insulin. They're synthesizing it. Maybe you have mistakes in folding, and somehow the immune system recognizes that there's beta cells that are not doing their job appropriately, and then they can get targeted for apoptosis. And that's why you have diabetes eventually. If your beta cells could keep compensating for insulin resistance, you would never get the frank diabetes. You would just have insulin levels that are sky high, but you can maintain glucoses, you know, appropriately. But at a point, your beta cells stop to do that, right? And then you then you have fasting hyperglycemia, then you have really profound glucose intolerance in response to a meal, which, you know, does that happen five years into, into the insulin-resistant phenotype? Does it happen 10? Does it happen 20? Yeah, I don't think we know, but it, it's a clear sort of progression. And I think there's evidence that, that at least in animal models, you know, that sort of beta cell exhaustion hypothesis is, is their support for it. And then going on to lipids, so how are they created? How are, how are more fats created because of, uh, because of insulin? Right. So normally... When everything is sort of homeostatic, your liver responds to insulin to make lipids through a process called de novo lipogenesis or, or, or new lipid synthesis. And that comes from sort of three carbon precursors. You obviously get plenty of lipids in the diet. So you, so you have metabolism through the diet that way. But the new lipids that are being made happen to a large extent in the liver, some in the fat cell. And the reason I'm harping on that is because in the conditions of fatty liver disease, that is now a really... Uh, you know, leading uh, complication of liver disease, highly correlates with type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance, and is overtaking, frankly, a lot of the main hepatitis in terms of, of liver diseases that we should care about. That process of de novo lipogenesis is kicked into high gear, and that it's maybe three to five-fold elevated. So your liver is producing more lipids than it typically would. And insulin is really important. The high insulin levels are really important for promoting that increase in lipogenesis through activation of specific pathways involved in, in lipid synthesis. And one is called this, uh, this transcription factor, SRBP1, which was identified by the Nobel laureates, Michael Brown and Joe Goldstein. So for whatever reason, we don't, I don't, we don't have the answer. And this is what the whole world's trying to work on for insulin resistance is why does insulin keep promoting lipid synthesis during quote unquote conditions of insulin resistance yet fail to control blood sugar? And so is there specific pathways that lipids are using, metabolic pathways that insulin is using to control lipids versus glucose? Maybe. Is there tissues talking to one another? Possibly. How are all those things integrated at a level of of an animal, right? Because these are complicated metabolic pathways, hard to recapitulate in cells where you just put insulin on cells and say how much lipids being made, how much glucose is being taken up. Um, Really understanding that nuance between the two, you know, that's where the major breakthroughs are going to come from the insulin resistance field to and understand really what's underlying metabolic disease. We cannot think of it in silos of just blood sugar regulation and dyslipidemia, right? They're so interrelated. And I already mentioned to you one popular hypothesis is that the dyslipidemia is driving the insulin resistance. But then I said, on the other hand, while well, insulin is required for making lipids, so it's the chicken or the egg argument, and it's really hard to deconvolute deconvolute. And what we try to do in the lab is just go in and make specific perturbations and as sort of minimalistic as we can to try to parse out the pathways. And that if we hope we can parse them out, then we can reconstitute which ones go, you know, which ones in, in our normal cases control lipid synthesis and are defective or uh, abnormal under insulin resistant conditions. 
Well, if you look at a liver, you know, a fatty liver, let's say a cadaver liver, what does yep. it look like versus a regular liver? Does the fat deposit in specific areas? Does that tell you anything? If you look at the well, those nature of so, the fat versus other fat. You know. Right. So if you do metabolic work, really, really fantastic work by Elizabeth Parks from the University of Missouri has taken individuals, not a cadaver liver, in, in, in human, living humans that either are insulin resistant or, or not, and fed them you know, radioactive or stable isotopes to measure exactly how the liver is metabolizing those tracers and then putting those tracers into lipids. And what she found is that a large proportion of that lipid that's being made during in those insulin resistant fatty liver individuals is coming from this process of de novo lipogenesis. So they're making more fat. And so a huge area of research from a lot of major pharmaceutical companies now in phase two and phase three are trying to come up with medicines to be able to antagonize de novo lipid synthesis to, to inhibit that pathway. And the prediction is if you can do that, that would clear the liver of that excess fat, improve insulin resistance, and improve fatty liver disease. So that's where the sort of this renewed interest, this new interest in, in, in fatty liver is really asking that question, is, is it really coming from new lipids being made? And that could be opposed to being excess lipid coming from the circulation and just being sort of stored there. But the, the, all the data, is, a lot of the data says that it's really this increase in lipid synthesis, this, this excess lipogenesis that is driving fatty liver. And that's a really popular hypothesis that a lot of drug companies are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to try and to test you know, in people with insulin resistance and fatty liver disease. Hmm. Okay. Well, as with everything else, it's a lot more complicated than it first appears. But um... <laughs> it's, That's exactly right. It's, it's, it's much more complicated. There's, there's, there's a lot of work to do. Um, and, and obviously, the, the further we dig, the more complicated it gets. I think that's true for a lot of, it certainly is true for insulin resistance. Yeah. Well, Paul, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? You can check out our website, um, the University of Pennsylvania. I have a website. You can you know, just go on to search our name. And, and then also, I have a Twitter handle. Um, you follow me on Twitter. Reach out to me. Send me a DM. I'd be happy to talk more um, and, and hear feedback and ideas about our science that I would love to discuss. Very good. Well, Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Fantastic. Thank you, Rich. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.